Today we're looking at John's third and final letter, at least the final one of the ones that we have preserved for us. Last time then we looked at his second letter and as these messages go onto the internet they require a title and the title of last week's was How to Be Inhospitable. I chose a major theme from John's last letter, which is that we should shun all those who come to us teaching false doctrine. I said that as long as they come in the role of teacher, we are to refuse them and not show them hospitality. And that uncommon way of Christians behaving is for three benefits, is for three reasons. The three reasons or benefits are firstly that when we reject such false teachers, we are testifying to them. By having nothing to do with them, we testify to them that we believe as a body that they are false teachers and hopefully it will give them cause for thought. The second benefit I proposed in doing this is that it's a witness to onlookers. So if I escorted someone out of the church building and told them they were not welcome, then it would be a good example being set to the people in the church, perhaps visitors too to see how error will not be tolerated. Perhaps neighbours in the street might see someone turn up to your house and watch as they get turned away. And that will have an effect on them perhaps. And the third benefit, of course, was that I suggested that it is a good way of sowing discord and discouragement into the souls of those people. We want them to be discouraged. We want the structure of their false religion to come crashing down. And so we employ that extreme behaviour towards those people. And yet, I did add that should those same people contact you in a spirit of humility and repentance and be genuinely seeking then we would welcome them with open arms and be and be uh, joyful as they sit amongst us and we provide hospitality to them and share the gospel with them today's final letter is to an individual person, Gaius. Now I'm led to believe that Gaius was the most common name in the Roman Empire. It's like somebody being called John Smith and trying to work out which John Smith it was. There are even people with the name Gaius in Scripture. Unfortunately, 
with those two or three individuals, it, it, it is not even possible to ascertain that it was one of those. But that is not of great importance. Within the letter, there are elements that we found in the previous two, unsurprisingly, love and truth. They are there in all the letters. And this one, this final letter, continues in the theme of hospitality. We saw in the last letter that certain people were not to be shown hospitality. Here we have somebody being commended for their hospitality towards genuine followers of Jesus who were proclaiming his gospel. But this letter also gives us an example of someone who practiced an improper type of shunning whereby he was refusing hospitality in the way that John described in his last letter but to the wrong people. Let's delve in then as we start this final letter. It's addressed to Gaius who John says that he loves in the truth. And there is a desire by John. It says he wishes above everything that Gaius would both prosper and be in good health. The same level of health as he had in a spiritual way. Now, what does he mean by prosperity? He means that Gaius would have an income. That he would have enough of an income to look after himself. We want those basic things, do we not? Like food, water, clothes and shelter. And I don't think for one second that John wished Gaius to be a millionaire. He also, of course, wished him to be healthy in his body. The spiritual health of Gaius was okay, but a lack in one of the other two could be a problem. If a servant of God was struggling with having just the basic things in life, or if they were on a sickbed, it could distract them and hinder their ministry. You will be aware by now that there is a, a sect within professing Christianity which promotes something called the prosperity gospel. This is a movement that emerged from within Pentecostalism for the most part. And we, we have seen, have we not, that they have gone about formulating a message and they've built it in the wrong way. The wrong way to build up a model, a system, a set of beliefs is to decide what your belief uh, is, then go to the scriptures and see if you can find any verses that can possibly 
make it look as if your argument is valid. We sometimes call those things proof texts because we are going to the Bible to try and prove a belief that we already have. Now that sounds to some like it's a reasonable way of developing doctrine because we are searching the scriptures. But my friends, it's the wrong way round. We start with the Bible, we read it, we allow it to speak to us and tell us what good doctrine is. It is very easy to come up with the most bizarre theories about anything and go to the scriptures and find one or two or three verses that seem to add weight to your bizarre claim. Instead, we need to look at the whole Bible. We need to let Scripture interpret Scripture. And if we do that faithfully, it will filter out all the nonsense and stop us from developing such wrong doctrines like the prosperity gospel. This gospel takes odd texts from the Old Testament, texts which are believed by many to be describing an idealised, restored Israel. And some people use those verses as figures for the gospel age. They speak figuratively about the age of the gospel in which we live. So then, the prosperity gospel teaches that it is God's will for us to be prospering, by which they mean wealthy, and also be in good health all our lives. And that if neither of those are true, well, that cannot be God's will. If you thought about this for some time, you might be drawn to certain scriptures which say something different. You may recall perhaps individuals in the Bible who God deliberately sent ill health to, or some disability perhaps, may have even brought them to the, to the brink where they just, just about had enough food and water to live on to teach them some lesson of some kind. Let me read this from Proverbs, in chapter 30, and verses 7 to 9. Proverbs 30, verses 7 to 9, says, Two things have I required of thee. Deny me them not before I die. Remove far from me vanity and lies. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food convenient for me. Lest I be full and deny thee and say, Who is the Lord? Or, lest I be poor and steal and take the name of my God in vain. So there are two extremes to be avoided. We are not meant to be rich and we're not meant to be poverty stricken either. We hope, we pray, the Lord will situate us somewhere in the middle. With the issue of health, we should be cautious. If there is an unbeliever with some illness, and for the reasons of, of love or some affinity you have with them, you decide that you want to pray earnestly to God, 
It could be a relative who you love. And so you, you pray for them earnestly that they would be healed. Let me suggest this to you. As you pray for that loved one's health and prosperity and easy career through life, is it not the case that you are clearing the path that leads to destruction? Proverbs has just told us that when someone is full, that is wealthy and well, they're more likely to ignore God, to have nothing to do with them. It's true. Why else would Jesus say there's not many rich men who enter the kingdom? Not many. Why does it say in Revelation in the church, the church of Laodicea's letter? They were criticised because they were saying in their own hearts, well, we are, we, 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 we're rich. We have this and we have this. We don't have need of anything. And they became cold towards God. This is what happens. So I think we should be cautious before we just launch in and pray for an easy life for unbelievers. Perhaps, perhaps we should be praying that the Lord will leave them with their disability or leave them in their illness until they finally surrender to him and repent. I mean, honestly, what use is it if they live a happy, carefree, godless life in health and wealth? only to die and go to an eternal hell. And then you, out of love, have made it easier for them. Friends, I am not saying to you that you should not pray for people to be better. You will pray for who you will pray for as you are burdened. I am only, exercise, I am only asking you to exercise caution with the prayers for healing. We see that uh, John had said that Gaius is, in any case, healthy in a spiritual way. He says in verse 2 that his soul prospers. And in verse 3, it's explained what that prosperity is. There was truth in Gaius. Truth in him. And also he walked according to that truth. John's telling us that Gaius, he, he held the truth and the truth held him. That's what it should be like for us. Remember in 2 John, it was a command from God that we walk in truth. John says in verse 4, this is his greatest joy. It's greatest, his greatest joy to witness other people walking in truth. Not just believe in doctrines, but allowing them to imprint on their lives and guide them in how they act and speak and think. John's joy. We also were spotted in verse 4, the term, my children. What John is saying is, guys, it was great to hear that you you're adhering to the truth and you're walking in that truth 
And I'm so happy because I just love to see my children like act like that. You see, so John is calling Gaius his, effectively his child. And it could be because of simple affection, but it could also be that Gaius was a convert of John's, perhaps through direct evangelism by John or through an indirect uh, method like a, a letter perhaps that Gaius had read from John. But listen to what it says in 1 Corinthians in chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verses 14 and 15. Paul says, I write not these things to shame you, but as my beloved sons, I warn you. For though ye have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet have ye not many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. Paul says that I fathered you, in a sense, through preaching the gospel. It's like, it's like, it's like these converts that are saved through your ministry. They, they're like, they become like sons. You cherish them. And this section now, verses 5 to 8, we look at Gaius's faithful hospitality. It said he was faithfully entertaining both the, the brethren and even people he didn't know. People would testify to Gaius's charitable, Christ-like nature. And so he's commended there. And we get here a glimpse into just another aspect of New Testament Christian life. And so we can learn a few things from this. What is it? What, what can we learn from these few verses? Well, we see that there's hospitality to believers is expected of us. It's whether those people are known to you or not. Now you might think that, well, <laughs> are you asking us to take in uh, any Tom, Dick or Harry into our homes who turns up at our door? Well, you might be more inclined if someone knocked on your door and asked for, for a, a bed for the night and some food. Well, depending on the circumstances, you might either risk it or phone the police, I don't know. But So in, in what circumstance would we reasonably then take in a stranger? Well, I'll give you an example. From a few weeks ago, a friend of mine was travelling across the country and emailed me and said, is there any chance I can stay in yours uh, one night? And then I'll be up early and off again. And I said, absolutely, of course you can. And he came and we had great fellowship. And during that time of fellowship, he asked me, would I consider giving a night's accommodation to somebody else who I didn't know? He commended this brother. He knew him. 
And so from my point of view, that, that uh, recommendation from a brother who I trust was good enough. And I immediately said yes. And so I phoned the guy and we made arrangements. And so there's a circumstance where we might take in both strangers as well as the brethren that we know. What else can we learn that, well, we can learn that uh, in verse 6, if we entertain people by having them uh, and feeding them maybe or giving them a bed for the night, we are to send them on their journey fully refreshed. And, and by giving them food and water and rest and some Christian fellowship, you, you are, you are re-energising them and you send them on their way. Uh, refreshed verse 6 is verse 6 sounds a little little uh, awkward it means these people if you if you send them on if you send them forward on their journey you're doing well if you do it in a manner worthy of God we are to look after these people and send them on their journey in a manner that is worthy of God. We have to remember, folks, that when a Christian when a Christian comes to you and you maybe have them in your homes, this is a child of the living God. You should show them the respect and love that you would show Jesus Himself if He came to your house. That's our obligation. What else do we get from here? We noted that they took nothing from the Gentiles. Now, the Gentiles would have been unbelievers and that is what is meant. We don't beg from the world to fund our exploits. You know, there were in ancient times, there were travelling teachers who would, they would go about with what, whatever the latest ideology or religion was and they would <laughs> they would maybe drop hints I don't know but they would they would they would get money people would give them money perhaps if they were superstitious they would give them money so that no bad luck would come their way perhaps this is why when Jehovah's Witnesses so-called go to people's houses that some people automatically go and give them some money. Maybe it's hedging their bets just in case, you know, I'll be nice to, the, to these uh, religious people. They might have the religion and then I've got all the bases covered. Well, these ancient teachers would go around and fraudsters. And I read the account of one who came home boasting that when he, when he got back, he would have sackfuls of money from going around with his uh, false uh, teaching. And Christians are not supposed to be like this. We, 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 we don't beg from the world. And I'd suggest to you that we be ultra-cautious with that collection plate. That we make sure that we never find ourselves thrusting a collection plate under the nose of a visitor if they are known to not be believers. What a terrible impression that has often made on the world. 
However, having said that, if unbelievers, if the world willingly offers to contribute to the work of the church, then we take it. We just take it. We're certainly not compromising our principles by doing so. If it's willingly given, we take it. Did not Jesus accept a glass of water from an unbelieving woman? Did the Hebrews not take money and clothes and jewellery from the unbelieving Egyptians? So if God stirs up the world to throw money our way, to help us in our gospel endeavours, then we take it. Another thing we find from this little section is that God has ordained that the church should support its workers. Let me read from 1 Corinthians in chapter 9 and verses 13 and 14. 1 Corinthians 9, 13. Do you not know that they which minister about holy things live off the things of the temple? And they which wait at the altar are partakers with the altar. Even so hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live off the gospel. It is of course the duty of the church as a whole to financially support the workers. Whether they be pastors, evangelists, missionaries... It is the church's job to support them as they are able to. So God has ordained that and it's obviously from what we've just read, this is an ancient principle of God's. And here's another thing from here connected with this in verse 8. Uses the term fellow helpers. Fellow helpers. It means that whenever the members of a church give of their own substance to the workers of the, the gospel, they are involving themselves in that very campaign. If you make a contribution to a pastor of a church, you are fully involving yourself in that ministry. You are fellow helpers. You are seen to be alongside. And although not everyone is cut out for being a missionary or a pastor. Insofar as you help those people, you enter into their ministry with them. You are involved, it says here in Matthew chapter 10, and verse 40 and 41. Jesus says, He that receiveth you receiveth me, and he that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. He that receiveth a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he that receiveth a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. It's a statement of an equality that is quite astounding that, that, that someone who supports in, a, in practical, material ways the missions of the church, they themselves will be looked on in the same way as those evangelists and pastors themselves. Friends, never, never underestimate that involvement in the ministry. 
what is all this about? What? These issues, these commendations, that about missionaries, missionaries of what? Missionaries of the gospel. What is the gospel? It is a message. It is a, the good news that salvation is come to this world. Well, who is the gospel about? Of course, it's about Jesus Christ, the wonderful Jesus Christ, who went and died on a cross for his people to take all their sins and claim them as if they were his. And it says in verse 7, why they went out for his name's sake for his name's sake and you know if we translated that more literally it would say for the sake of the name not his name but the name the name the name of jesus christ it is a marvelous name it not only identifies him it also tells us wonderful things about his characteristics his wonderful wonderful characteristics no wonder then that it is said that he has a name which is above every name what a savior if you look at verses 9 and 10 we see this next issue with diotrephes diotrephes there's a problem here isn't there we have John saying that I've written to the church where Diotrephes was in leadership. I wrote to them, but Diotrephes would have nothing to do with us. It may well be that John wrote a letter to them and it was immediately destroyed, thrown on the fire perhaps by Diotrephes. Diotrephes was was not only refusing to listen to John, he was turning uh, missionaries, preachers away. He would not have them show any hospitality to them. And when he found out that people in the congregation were sympathetic to these travellers and were willing to show them hospitality, he had them thrown out. He was disfellowshipping those who were sympathetic, as if that wasn't bad enough. He also slandered the Apostle John. And perhaps in doing that he was showing his contempt for all the Apostles. As I said earlier, he was turning people away in the exact fashion that John told us to in his second letter, but to the wrong people. Why? Why this extreme behaviour? I want to propose to you one idea. You have to remember that with the, the final writings of the, the Bible, with the apostles dying, the apostolic age was coming to an end. There was therefore a change in the way churches were governed. The system of apostles having the oversight of churches all over the place would obviously have to come to an end. If the church is believed, which is quite right, that the apostolic office would be coming to an end, then who was to have the oversight? Well, the churches had been told that they should appoint leaders, 
elders and deacons from amongst them and that they would rule now what happened which is quite natural perhaps is that uh, there has to be a figurehead there has to be someone who's regarded as if you like being in charge if you've any experience of committees you will know that a committee without a chairman would not work there needs to be someone who takes charge and makes decisions about how the meeting will progress and it's the same in churches we have a natural a natural inclination towards having yeah maybe several leaders but there has to be one who is in charge the one who is the figurehead of the church and so back in the early church as the elders were being appointed in churches there would arise quite naturally one of those elders that would be perhaps more gifted in preaching and so we would have the the chief elder sometimes called the teaching elder the one who does most of the teaching that man would be the figurehead of that church and so when the letters were sent out in the book of revelation to the various churches in asia minor they were addressed to the angels of each church the angels are the messengers of each church and it's possible that that was referring to the pastors of each church but certainly we know for sure that there was a tendency to have a, a pastor what happened then i think back then was that let me try and give the benefit of the doubt to diotrephes let me put the best spin on it that i can let's say that that diotrephes knew the apostolic age was coming to an end he knew that the churches would have to be autonomous they would be in unity with other churches but each local church would need a rulership an eldership that ruled well and they would need a a chief elder if you like someone to look to 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 be the i don't know the, the chairman the final arbiter on decisions in the church and perhaps diotrephes thought that we need to be setting this up and i'm constantly being told what to do by john and he's sending these people and maybe a diotrephes just got sick of the interference perhaps as he saw it and perhaps he thought that he should then start to, to separate himself from them and say to the missionaries you know go so at best diotrephes behavior would be regarded as unwise to say the least but he did more he did more than that he just showed a lack of humility and a lack of love in, in his dealings with the apostle i mean why didn't diotrephes reason with john like a brother if what i proposed was slightly true diotrephes could have approached john and said look john we love you we recognize your authority as an apostle but the time of the apostles is ending we need to stand on our own two feet and it's not helpful when we receive preachers and missionaries and we 
we, we get these letters off you all the time. We, we, need, to be, we need to be left to, to stand on our own two feet. Now, had Diotrephes said anything like that, John, in his charity, would have reasoned with Diotrephes and perhaps explained why, for the time being, he should remain as the authoritative voice over the churches. But Teotrephes didn't do anything like that. He was therefore on very, very shaky ground in what he did. And it is possible that he was not a believer at all. That may be the view of most people who read this, but we shouldn't jump to conclusions. But certainly, as we've seen, if people act in these ungodly ways, they should not be thinking of themselves as believers at that moment. They should think there's something wrong that needs fixing. So, what else can we say about this? We, we see that in here is an example. An example that shows us the faulty church leadership is real. It was something back then. It is something that will carry on in the future for as long as there is a church. Faulty church leadership. Friends, leaders, elders and pastors do things wrong. Not always, maybe hardly ever. But they will all make mistakes. They will make bad judgments. They will maybe institute practices which are not biblical. They may teach doctrines which are not founded on scripture themselves. There may be an emphasis in their preaching which doesn't reflect the emphasis that we see in the Bible. And they may even show an utter lack of wisdom in discipline. And discipline is something that the church is meant to submit to. And so if you have this bizarre situation, like with Diotrephes, where the leader who they're supposed to submit to are telling them to have nothing to do with these other Christians over here. An appalling uh, judgment by Diotrephes. And it happens today. It happens today. Have a look at this in Titus uh, chapter 1. This is the description of a leader in the church, or what they should be. Titus chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. The leader, he should be a lover of hospitality. A lover of good men, sober, just, holy, temperate, holding fast the faithful word as he's been taught. High standards. It is said that we know when there is a great fault in a government, when good men go to jail. And there have been times in the past when the country, our country, has put good, godly, Christ-like men in jail. And it is a sign that something is fundamentally wrong. And when we get an example like this, where leaders in churches are disfellowshipping or even expelling good Christian men from their congregations, there is a fault. Lack of wisdom. Lack of spiritual maturity. John says that this bad judgment of Diotrephes, he's going to make it all known 
if he visits did John get round to visiting I don't know but if he visited he planned to if he visited to expose all this you see his letter he could send all the letters he wanted and they could all go in the bin but if he turns up then Diotrephes won't be able to do anything John can just march in there and say his peace to the church and hopefully himself disciplined Diotrephes maybe get him thrown out it says he in, in uh, it says in their first Timothy it's in the fifth chapter it says that uh, Paul says the leaders who sin the elders who sin he says you should expose them in front of everyone should it should make their sin known because it's very very serious let's move on to verses 11 and 12 we have another one of John's famous black and white statements. Beloved, don't follow that which is evil. Follow that which is good. He that does good is of God. He that does evil is not of God. Clear enough. And he gives us an example of a guy called Demetrius. He commends Demetrius as a godly man. I don't know, maybe Demetrius was the one who was delivering this letter by hand, perhaps. But there's a high standard set by John. Very black and white. It's almost as if our aim is to be 100% perfect in doctrine and practice. Well, friends, that is exactly what our target is. We are meant to be 100% sinless, perfect in doctrine. And completely without blame in all our practice. Please don't laugh and say that that's unrealistic. That is what God has asked us to do. Let's not laugh in his face and claim that we're not able to do it. If we're not able to do that. And who is? Who has ever been? But if we're not. We don't answer back to God. We own up to our deficiency and we go to God and say sorry ask for forgiveness and ask for help I'll close the remarks then verses 13 and 14 very similar to 2nd John John says to them this is so nice writing to you this letter but I so want to see you face to face there's something important about seeing them meeting them face to face we live in these unusual unique days where we find half the world is in an enforced lockdown because of this virus and so we are prevented from meeting face to face the sermons of this church go out on the internet for the time being. Some churches do live streaming, video streaming, so people can watch their pastor and see his face, if you like, while he's preaching. But all these things are just making do. I do hope we're not satisfied with that. You know, pastors around the world, I think, are slightly concerned concerned that their people 
might get used to this way of listening to the messages. They might think that they are fulfilling their responsibilities by praying at home and listening to their pastor online. And that, of course, is not the case. Why, why, what is this business about being face-to-face that John places an emphasis on? It's because that's the way God has made us. He has made us as creatures that respond to each other in the best way when we see each other face-to-face. We have a very sophisticated exchange between two people based on complexities of language and complexities of facial expressions and other mannerisms. And it is an experience that cannot be reproduced by written letters, emails or even video conferencing, video chats. We were meant to interact face to face with social creatures. This is how God has made us. And it is my prayer that not only the people from this congregation, but from every congregation in our land, that they would be dissatisfied right now, that they would yearn to have proper fellowship with the saints. And if there are any people out there who feel quite comfortable and could quite happily go on this way indefinitely, there is something wrong. There is something wrong with their walk and they need to be made aware of that and ask God to help them. I mean, can you imagine a a, a mother being separated from her children by thousands of miles and never being able to meet them again? Imagine. Now, they may communicate through the internet They may be able to see each other's faces on a computer screen. But any mother will tell you that that is not really as good. Not by a long way. They want to see them. They want to get hold of them. They want to hug them. They want to kiss them. And so on. And I just pray. I just pray that when we come out of this episode. That the church will not be worse off but that it will be cleansed and purged and it will be healthier as a result. Well, friends, after these um, several months, we have come to the end of John's writings. We are witnessing the end of all those ages of inspiration. For thousands of years, God has been communicating to his people, the prophets and the apostles. Even Jesus' own words are recorded. And then, Jesus ascends, the apostles one by one die. And finally, with those writings, comes the end of all inspiration. Those writings, they go out, they get shared, the churches reproduce them, they use them to teach from, They acknowledge them as having apostolic authority. And in the providence of God, the church was put into something of a corner where they had to make a formal declaration together about which of these writings, which were around, 
should be regarded as the word of God. And so they agreed together that all these writings that we now know as the Bible should be gathered together and called the Scriptures, the Bible. And this is what we have today in our own language. John has been so highly challenging, hasn't he? He's been greatly encouraging. He's been doctrinal. He's also been practical. And all those things we've looked at should be considered with reference to Jesus Christ himself. Jesus Christ. We respect John. We respect him. But much more Jesus Christ. We're thankful to John for giving these things to Christians throughout history. We're thankful to him, but we're much more thankful to the one who he wrote about and the one who inspired him to record these things for us. We shall close with a word of praise to him. These are the words of John himself from the book of Revelation and the first chapter. John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come and from the seven spirits which are before his throne and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his father to him be glory and dominion for ever and ever amen